Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Una Mannion on her debut novel, A Crooked Tree. Una Mannion was born in Philadelphia and lives in County Sligo. She has won numerous prizes for her work, including the Hennessy Emerging Poetry Award and the Doolin, Corch, Allingham and Ambit Short Story Prizes. Her work has been published in the Irish Times, The Lonely Crowd, Cranog and Bear Fiction. And she edits The Cormorant, a broadsheet of prose and poetry. And today we're going to be talking about Una's debut novel, which is A Crooked Tree. Una, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, tell me how you would describe A Crooked Tree. Well, I guess I thought that I was writing literary fiction and uh, I guess that's a very vague term, but it's a, in some ways it's a coming of age story that explores friendship, um, teenage friendship and sibling relationships. And I guess it's also about grief. It's been reviewed as like a thriller and I guess there is a kind of a story threaded through a potential threat to one of the, it's, it's focuses on a family of five and one of the kids um, gets into bother at the very start of the novel, a 12-year-old girl when she, when she hitchhikes. But I guess for me, I didn't think of it so much as a thriller, but maybe that element added a bit of pace. So I, it's been the New York Times put it in the thriller section when they reviewed it. But I, I think it's a coming of age story and maybe even a little bit of an exploration of America in the early 1980s. Yeah, so it's set in 1981. So let's talk about why you chose that period in particular. Yeah, I, I think 1981 struck me as just the start of the Reagan era. Um, so I suppose in America, it was the end of a kind of idealism. Um, you know, the 60s and 70s were definitively over. And there have been a lot of, I suppose, political violence. And there was just this new period of conservatism. And I remember it very vividly. And I was a child of Irish immigrants, you know, who were, unlike most Irish Americans, were not Republicans, were very much Democrats. And I think I was sort of very conscious of that particular time of, I suppose, change in America. And also some of the things that this a sense of the Cold War, Valley Forge, where the book is set, there were actually these Nike sites, um, there were like anti-missile missile sites 
There was a nuclear power plant being built nearby. Um, I think that music, you know, on the cusp between like post-punk and new romantic music and and people still very much stuck in rock. So for me, that time in the early 80s was really interesting. And also, I think it's funny, I watched Manhunter recently in during the pandemic, during the lockdown, I found, discovered Netflix. And I was thinking also just about that sense of menace, like serial killers or that that sense of threat, you know, that so the at the start of the book, the teenage narrator is thinking about things like the Atlanta child murders. You know, there was black children in Atlanta. I think 20 some children had been murdered. And, you know, that kind of sense of menace for me belonged to the early 80s. Well, I mean, you said this is obviously where you grew up yourself as well, in an Irish immigrant family in America in this area. And, you know, it mentioned in the acknowledgements of the book that you've got, you know, a, a lot of siblings as well. So, so how much of this story comes out of your own childhood? Yeah, I mean, the book is fiction, definitely. But I've definitely, you know, I've drawn obviously on place. I, and I initially was going to scrub all the reference and have it sort of be a non-place or a fictional place. But I... I felt that the place itself resonates so much like Valley Forge, the Revolutionary War, the, mm-hmm. the Lenape um, Native American tribe that had been there. And there's still a lot of traces of that. There's this national park and a horseshoe trail. And I started to think like, it's such a great place to set something. And the, even the place names like King of Prussia and Contra Huffin, And I kind of decided to set it there. I think elements of it are definitely drawn from A, being part of a big family and one of eight children. You know, the narrator in the book has this sense of being part of a pack and part of her, I think, anxiety that's over the course of the summer of 1981 is her sense that they're starting to fall apart. And she doesn't really see her identity yet as separate from her siblings. And I can really identify with that because I've always been part of like, you know, a pack of people not were not autonomous individuals, like other mature adults. You know, I always still feel like I'm part of this first family that's really big, but the events are fictional. I do think that the experience of the father as someone who is in America, who doesn't really um, isn't typical of the Irish American going over and being completely at home or settling or living the American dream. I think that very much was something that I experienced or witnessed in my childhood. And I probably drew on that. And my father was a landscaper. And so I grew up cutting grass. I worked from a really young age, drove pickups long before I had a driver's license, you know, got gravies and bobcats up and down off pickup trucks. Like that was part of my childhood. And I, I suppose I, you know, I drew on that very specifically. I'm a similar age to the children in this story. Uh, I'm probably probably Ellen's age, I'd say. And, um, you know, I also grew up in a, in a relatively large family. And obviously, Faye, the, you know, the mother in this story, we'll talk about in a little while, is unconventional as a mother, perhaps we'll say for now. But I was also struck by, you know, thinking about my own childhood, thinking about the children in this book. I guess just how much parenting has changed. My kids, um, when I say things like, oh, we had so much more freedom and we were free to, you know, to go and walk into danger and experience things. My kids are eye-rolling me across the room because they think I'm a complete, the complete opposite, that I've been a helicopter mother. You know, I have three teenagers and I think I've parented them in a totally different way than, than my experience of growing up, which was like absentee parenting completely. And as did everyone, you were gone until you came home. 
you know, that was, and no one really knew where you were. And I think in a large family, there was a kind of expectation that one of the older siblings knew where you were, or you were with one of them. So I think parenting has changed. And I mean, we, I think it's, if I could go back to the beginning of my, of my parenting, I think I would give my kids a lot more freedom. I'm not sure that everything being organized for them is that helpful, you know, because they don't have that sense of agency in the world and they haven't had the opportunity to mix with the wrong people or to maybe get in a bit of trouble or to have all these experiences that are so formative because everything's been quite safe. Let's talk about the a bit more about the area. You've you've described where the book is set, but tell us a bit more about what it's actually like, that sort of Valley Forge area, the mountain. A lot of people have been describing the book as being set in a very rural place, but it's but it's actually not. I would describe it as more suburban. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, but Valley Forge National Park is on this cusp at the time, not not anymore. But at the time, it was really on the cusp between like to the west really was farmland and undeveloped land, and to the east was very industrialized. And you know, um, the kids take a trip to the King of Prussia Mall, and at the time, in one that year, King of Prussia Mall would become the biggest shopping mall in the world. You know, it's that kind of. I think that geographically or something that the, you know, Libby is a little bit resistant to development and, you know, she wants things to stay, you know, like I suppose a lot of teenagers, she wants things to stay the way they are. And I think Valley Forge was quite apt. I mean, the things like the Valley Forge Mountain Swim Club that does exist, you know, the pool hopping at night and parties, you know, and I guess like any community, it was like that. But it also had this magical um, space of the woods because, and they're protected because it's a national park and a national trail that cuts through Valley Forge Mountain and the Horseshoe Trail. So the woods are, those are protected. And so you're in suburbia, but it's quite rural and it's full of woods and trails and old quartzite mines and really like a stunning place to grow up. Stunningly beautiful. What was it like to to revisit the area through the novel? I found it quite intense. At the very start of writing, I went back and met a childhood friend that I hadn't seen probably in 30 some years um, She who grew up there. And um, we walked through the house I grew up in and we walked the trail and we walked around the mountain and she just lost her daughter, her 21 year old daughter. And so it was quite emotional like to be back in this place and you know so much had happened. But that was at the very start of writing. So the, for the duration of writing the book, I was at a distance, you know, in Ireland writing it. I used Google Maps a lot. I followed someone's blog who walked the Horseshoe Trail. I found that part quite, um, I loved, you know, maybe in some way we're all trying to get home, you know, to ride ourselves back to a home. And so for me, spending time there and just remembering the way a road curved or how the path twisted or something was I really enjoyed it. I, I loved it, in fact. That's interesting to hear you describe it as such. So do you consider that to be home then, rather than island? Well, I mean, I lived, I only lived on Valley Forge Mountain for, you know, a number of years, like I, very few, but I think they were very formative. And it's the last place I ever lived with my siblings. So I suppose, like I have, you know, I think of it as my first place. But it's very different in Ireland because here, like where where my family are, they've been in on the same land for hundreds of years. My aunt and uncle have always lived, their brother and sister, like, oh, my aunt got married, but her husband moved in. They've always been in the same house. And so coming home here, nothing changed. And I, it's probably why I'm here. I loved that 
stability and continuity. Whereas in America, like I don't know anyone really that lives on Valley Forge Mountain anymore. And there's, it's a much more mobile culture. I don't know where home is. I talked earlier about my father and sort of seeing him displaced in some ways. And, but I think I'm a little bit the same, you know, I, I love living in Ireland and, you know, I love going back to America to visit, but I'm, I'm not sure where it's home. You know, if I open my mouth in Ireland, people are like, what part of America are you from? And when I'm in America, people are like, but you don't, you don't sound American. So, and I've been in, I've been in Ireland for 30 years now. So. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Una Mannion and we're talking about her book, A Crooked Tree. And Una, let's spend some time talking about the characters in the book, first of all, in the second half. And we should obviously start with the the narrator of the book, Libby. Tell us something about her. Yeah, so Libby's 15. I think I would describe her as a warrior. You know, she's sort of bearing witness to the things that are happening to her family and to her siblings. There's something about her that has like almost pre-nostalgia. You know, she's trying to hold on to something because she feels that it's already spinning away from her. And she's also immature. Maybe, you know, she has a best friend. And I, I really wanted to write about that, the intensity of friendships when you're a teenage girl. Like It's like having, a, it's like being in love. And I often think I've, I've had very few boyfriends, but I can't 
remember any of them really, but the best friends, they're part of me, that you, car- you carry that. But Libby's immature in some ways, and I suppose over the course of the novel that maybe she realizes that she sees her mother, you know, even though the mother's emotionally distant, she begins to see that her mother is flawed, but is trying her best. Even though the, the mother is unorthodox is, or unconventional, as you said earlier, and with her friend, because there's a little bit of class difference, she's kind of not seeing her friend as experiencing fracture or dysfunction or pain. You know, she's and I think she's she's humbled a little bit by the end of the book, realizing what she's failed to recognize. It's interesting that, you know, as you mentioned, the book has a, a sort of dramatic plot, a, a incident that happens that sort of drives the story, um, Libby obviously is central to that, and and her, I guess, her overriding concern throughout the book is protecting her siblings, protecting the family unit. Ironically, the story ultimately is about the breakup of family, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that is, and I think probably she knows it already deep down, and maybe that's why she's holding on so hard. Even without the external threat of what's happened to her sister, I think she, her eldest sister is heading off to college. The mother's already emotionally left the family unit to a certain extent. And I think she knows that things are kind of going to end even before they do. You know, I think it's that last gasp of of trying to hold on. Tell us something about the the other siblings. Uh, okay, so I'll say uh, Marie is the eldest sibling, and she's a bit of a punk rocker. You know, so she's she's just graduated from high school, and she's heading off to the University of Pennsylvania in the autumn, and she leaves the house. She moves to Philadelphia to work in a record store, but she's kind of, um, I think, where Libby's a worrier. Marie's out there confident and strident and fierce or feisty or something in the world, and She's going to see these bands, you know, in like basements in West Philly and, you know, different um, clubs, even though she's she hasn't even turned to 18 yet. And she's sort of like into the punk ethos. And and she's a huge influence on the narrator because she's wisdom, I think. And she's I think her armor is is to be a bit not sarcastic, but maybe ironic about things. You know, she calls things and. She's a really good counterpoint, you know, for, for Libby. And so when she leaves, Libby's feeling really bereft. And she's also being left with all the rubble of keeping the younger siblings safe. Um, and then the next, you know, the children have lost their father. The father died just almost two years before the novel opens. And the eldest brother's kind of disappeared a little bit into himself. He's 16, quite serious and earnest and academic and withdrawn and she sort of sees him disappearing into himself a little bit. Libby sees her brother, Thomas, disappearing. And then the other two siblings are younger. Um, one, Ellen, is the one who, who's gotten into bother at the start of the novel. And but it's very, oh, she's kind of an angry, she's an angry kind of uh, fierce personality, artistic, but she's very, but she's very young. She's, she's only 12. And then Beatrice is the youngest, she's seven. And I think Beatrice is completely innocent. There's a suggestion that the mother's boyfriend might be her father. And so Beatrice is, uh, Libby feels incredibly protective of her as well, trying to hold on to her and, you know, claim her as, you know, this is our, she's our family. And so, yeah, that's the, the five kids. 
you mentioned that you know the the father has been dead for a short while. Faye, the mother, is the, the, this interesting situation where the father is almost more present in the novel as a character than Faye is because, as you said, she's you know she's distancing herself from the family. She's having this other relationship of which we never we never really see anything of because the children never you know have never even met her new partner, and so she's very lightly drawn and very sort of like not really present in the story for a lot of the time and I, and I wondered why you, you took that approach with her. Yeah I and it's funny because I probably sketched her in a little bit more in subsequent drafts than than what she was originally I think she was really almost spectral you know and I, I think I had to flesh her out a little bit more but I guess what I was trying to show was her absence you know she's not a bad person but she's not in some ways, her role has already been usurped by the kids. They've already shouldered the responsibilities of the adult world in some ways. And she, the mother is working full time and rearing kids, these kids on her own. And she's unhappy. And I think she feels incredibly guilty about the death of her ex-husband. So they had divorced. Um, he'd gone to New York when they had first separated she started a relationship with someone that she kept secret from the children and, and has continued to do, to do that. I get that for me, she was someone who found it difficult to even look at her children anymore. She felt that she'd let them down and in a way. She's just talking out the time until they go, even though she loves them and would do anything for them. I think that she just felt slightly helpless. You know, Marie and Thomas are so mature and have kind of taken on things taken on her role and so like I mean a lot of people like this is a terrible mother and then in some of the American threads people were like I can't you know on Goodreads which it's not you're not you shouldn't read them but like you know I can't read this let's not talk about Goodreads Christ (laughs) (laughs) Um, like this mother is awful and all these things and I can't read this book and I was thinking you know I I don't think that she's that unusual and that idea of a parent sort of hardly there is, I don't think is that unusual in that time. And or or now, I mean, there's plenty of parents that are present, but not. And so there's a lot of like, Libby only sees the closed door. She finds it's difficult to see her mother's face. Not until later in the novel, does she really look at her mother? I, I don't know that it was conscious decisions while I was writing, but that is what, that is what happened. Or that's how the character kept receding <laughs> or something. I was going to ask you how Faye had been received by readers because, you know, she seems to me to be a rounded human character who behaves badly in certain ways, but, you know, is not clearly not a, a bad person and, and is someone who is struggling with the situation she finds herself in. But nonetheless, I think it's obviously a sort of sexist idea, but I think, you know, people do seem to expect more of mothers than what we get from Faye. Yeah, definitely. Um, and especially then, you yeah. know, in the late 70s, or early 80s, so like she was divorced. Um, she's There's only other one other divorced woman that Libby knows on the mountain where they live. But because she's a professional, it feels different. Because in terms of class, like somehow she makes it look glamorous while, while Libby's mother makes it, you know, look shameful. Or, you know, they're carrying this stuff around about what expectations are. And I think that... You know, readers and and reviewers have commented on sort of in both directions. Like some people were saying, like she's 
neglectful or selfish, but I think other people have just seen her as she is just very human. And she's only in her thirties still. She's five kids. Her former husband is dead. It seems like she's having a relationship with someone who's married, which means she's accepting just the slivers of love that she can get rather than a fuller relationship. He's never met her, the rest of her children. And, and I think like I would hope that readers would feel incredible empathy for her because that's hard. She's working full time and supporting the kids and, and they're all really, like, I think they're good kids. They're, you know, they're, none of them have really gone off the rails despite everything and despite her absenteeism. No, and let's we can. I just want to talk about one other character, and and um, we can reflect on on these siblings and how they've turned out in comparison to the character Wilson McVeigh, who we'll be careful about because obviously don't want to give too much away about what happens over the course of the story. But this is a character that it seems is somebody who's very much gone off the rails. Yeah, and and I think he has. Like I I think he is a volatile character who's had a really traumatic childhood who's had obviously has had like a mental breakdown has been sent away is still kind of selling drugs and and he's odd he's hanging around kids way younger than him and he's like 19 almost 20 and is really isolated but hovering always around the edges and and he's watching the family which is also a bit weird you know because something about their oddity or their eccentricity or the fact that they're not like other families and because they're fatherless draws him and he's interested in them. And for whatever reason, he wants to to protect them, but brings them a world of trouble in the process. I didn't plan Wilson McVeigh. I needed someone to go that they could ring to call, to go look for the girl on the road for the younger sister. And when he arrived, I got really interested in him because I think that whole time, you know, we all know these people when you're growing up and the person you should stay away from because they've had difficulty or, and I hope that by the end of the novel, he's shown to be way more complex than that and, and good. Um, you know, he's damaged, but, but he's, he's trying to do what he thinks is right. And I think that's as Libby for Libby, it was important for her to see that or to have that experience to experience that because she's someone who's always been afraid of, she's a worrier and she's afraid and fearful of people and experiences and they form a friendship. So I think that I kind of just got intrigued by Wilson and he stayed for the duration of the novel. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, So what I might do is read um, just a little bit from the very end of the first chapter. And then I might just read one little scene when they're out working with their dad. Um, This is before the dad died and it's it's in a flashback. The book opens, it's the summer of 1981. It's it's the last day of school and the family are all driving home with the mother, you know, the mother's driving the car and the kids are squabbling and the mother's getting frustrated, particularly with Ellen, the younger sister. And so the mother pulls in. The car skidded into the shoulder right where 252 crossed the turnpike. Out, get out. My mom said it with her voice low, which let us know she meant it. Ellen reached across Thomas, opened the back door, and started to climb out. You can't leave her here, Maurice said. It's getting dark. She started to gather her bag from the floor of the front. Wait, said Thomas. He looked stricken, blaming himself for all the teasing. 
Ellen was standing on the gravel verge of the overpass in her school pinafore, tennis shirt, and knee socks. Marie was opening her door when my mother threw the car into gear and accelerated forward. I looked back. Ellen was facing away from us, looking down over the bridge where columns of cars funneled along the turnpike. Mom, don't, please, Thomas said, but she didn't answer. We sped up 252 into the National Park and then turned west toward Valley Forge Mountain. Ahead of us, the sun had fallen below the fields. We were still five or six miles from home. I hadn't said anything to make my mother stop. We careened down the road, went through the covered bridge past farmland and fences. Beside us, the shadows of dogwoods blurred in the dark as my mother kept driving. Each tree hemmed in a halo of white where the bracts had fallen. Um, so I think as we were talking about that event will precipitate that child being left on the road, she's going to get into um, a difficult situation and that hangs over the novel. So I'm just going to read from a later moment when the kids are, um, the older kids are working with their dad. I remembered a day at the Cat Ladies when we were working with my dad. She lived in, alone in an old Victorian style house with at least 40 cats my dad had looked after her garden for over 15 years since before I was born. She'd been trying to sell the house for a long time, and a few summers ago it had finally sold, even with all the cats hanging around, lying on counters and sitting in sinks. When she was moving, she hired my father to do some work inside, pulling up carpets and taking old furniture to the dump. Marie, Thomas, and I all went to help with the job. It was late July and hot, well into the 90s. We'd peeked through her windows before to look at the cats, but had never been inside. The heat and stench were stifling. The ammonia from the cat pee burned our eyes. We choked and the air squeezed out of my lungs. It was a three-story house and the cats had been everywhere. To make it worse, she turned off the air conditioning. The mean bitch, Marie muttered. We started on the third floor where it was hottest and tried to pull out the small carpet nails at the edges. Dad told us to go back to the truck and get gloves. The fumes were in my mouth and throat. When we rolled up the first carpet, which was damp, the floorboards were rotten underneath. Get out of the house and wash your hands and face at the spigot. Get the soap in the truck, Dad told us. Thomas, you stay with me. He said the odor would never come up. The odor would never come out. The new owners would have to take up the floorboards. Marie and I sat outside for hours saying very little, while Dad and Thomas finished the work alone carrying rolled-up rotten carpets and heaving them into the back of the truck. Thomas worked intently, staggering under the weight and smell, never wanting to let my father down. He was 14. I sat on the curb with Marie and looked over at the garden that my father had planted for the cat lady years earlier. That year's tomatoes were ripe and red on their vines. Dad had cane supporting them with soft string so as not to damage the tender stalks. The cat lady had a Venus de Milo statue in the garden, a naked woman about as high as my hip with missing arms. Marie walked over and kicked her to the ground and came back and sat next to me on the curb. Her face was dirty and street. Fucking people think they know something about culture, she said. So I've been talking to Una Mannion. We'll be talking about her debut novel, A Crooked Tree, which is out in the UK from Faber. Una, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.